Hi everybody and welcome to No Country. My name is J. David Osborne and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? Well, you know, I have to say, on balance, pretty good. I, I have gone through some uh, turmoil of late, moving uh, and then relocating to an Airbnb and having an interesting disaster there, which we may get to. And I'm uh, camped out at a Hampton Inn, which is a relatively nice, but sort of, you know, still sort of mid-range, motelish, hotelish sort of thing. A lot of intersections and crossing over and connecting with people on the move, people in motion. And when you see that, you think, I really must remember to uh, to be grateful, you know, to be grateful, mm-hmm. uh, because there are so many different levels of people on the move, you know, not just you know in every city, everywhere, uh, and that it's from the ground up. It's from you know homeless people camped out in the dry riverbeds to. Uh, people from Florida and Michigan out here to looking for work or running away or you know you just really get this sense of of that's where so much art and culture has come from of you know pilgrims and fugitives you know so I'm in that groove and right now I'm feeling pretty grateful excellent yeah now we got a little bit of snow this week um, so we've been inside for the past few days now it's all melted. It's turned into that nice Oklahoma slush. Yeah. And I am hanging out on my couch and yeah, just having a bit of a grouchy, grumpy day. But we're going to still do a good episode here. Um, There's nothing still, wrong with being you know, grumpy. Nothing wrong with amen. being grumpy. Hey, man. It's, you know, it's just, it's the world right now. You know, I think that it's this kind of totalizing, um, archonic. Uh, technocratic transhumanist machine has its you know boot firmly planted on the <coughs> excuse me on the back of my neck right now and I'm sick and tired of it but now nah, I'm good I'm good it's it'll all be fine it'll all be just fine um, before we get into the episode before we get to my challenge and then we get to the episode Uh, I wanted to do a quick book club update. So we are just about ready to go. I have uh, this next week, I have uh, three manuscripts that I have to get through in order to uh, kind of meet my deadlines and, you know, make money for for bills and things like that. But around Valentine's Day, I'm free. And Chris is also in the middle of a big move. So we're just looking for a little bit of stability because once you get moved in Chris and once you know I I move in April we will be semi-permanent where we are I mean nothing's ever a sure thing but we will be settled for the foreseeable future hopefully for at least the next decade Um, exactly right exactly right (coughs) is is there any excuse me I got a frog in my throat is there anything you'd like to mention in addition to that uh, no, no, just that we're, we're certainly uh, eager to, to get launched with the book club. Uh, we do need to uh, get these uh, major moves handled. So uh, if people could be a little bit uh, lenient with us about that, we're, we will. The good news is, as David said, that, that we're looking at 
a pretty long-term picture on both sides, which I'm I'm very excited about. And I know David is. It's uh, it's there's something good about being on the move. I I do good work when I'm camped out and and stressed out and in between places, but you can't do that for very long. And there's mm-hmm. only certain mm-hmm. kinds of work that you can do. And I think everyone in that situation has certain kinds of thinking that sort of circulates through, which is interesting, but it's not the basis for what we want to do in terms of, of our community building uh, activities. And the book club is the first one. So we're just trying to give that the best shot that we can. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Chris, I'm ready for my creative challenge. Okay. This again is one of these that seems very simple because it's, it's short, if you like, but it's very, very, very complex intellectually. There are eight or nine, perhaps depending on your definition, parts of speech accepted in English. And I will leave our listeners to run those through, do the inventory in your mind of what those are, the essential building blocks. And they carry over to all of the major languages. Uh, there are some variations, of course, but the principles are, are there. The eight to nine parts of speech. And they, in turn, reflect a huge, deep, complex uh, level of structure and grammar at a conceptual level that underlies mm-hmm. all human thinking. So, David, your challenge is to invent a new part of speech to give it a name and to demonstrate its functionality and I as a clue uh, I mean I think this is you know we're we're looking at deep grammars deep structures of what we mean by language and culture with a capital C our ghost radio signal idea and how that has emerged to what extent has it been invented? You know, people go, it's, a, it's just a social construct. And you go, well, yeah, oh, really? Well, how does that work? Uh, a lot of things are very mysterious that way. I mean, did we invent it or did it invent us? That's going to be, I think, an important thematic point to explore over the next year. But it's very difficult to imagine being creative at that profound linguistic and cultural level and yet i mean that's kind of uh the argument you know it's certainly the the argument of our social realist uh very uh social politically oriented people today who believe everything is a human construct. Mm. Uh, mm. Well, then I think we should be able to see some new innovations there. Uh, and we should be able to look to our brightest people to do, you know, pull something out of the ether. Um, oh, wow. Well, but, the good news is the good news is that I know the eight parts of speech. I'm not sure that I know the nine parts of speech. So I'm, I'm, I've got a good, you know, starting point there I, I at least can kind of work my way around that we'll see we'll see what i can do here this is a tough one i think uh, to, to help you the one that you might be missing is the interjection as yep, in didn't oh have interjection you know yep uh did not have the article 
you know, an article? Definite or indefinite? Yeah, there's nouns, pronouns, adjectives, adverbs, verbs, conjunction, preposition, and articles. I did not have interjection. Okay. And one thing that you might uh, draw upon, because, you know, we're committed to helping ourselves and helping each other activate magic where we can. Earlier, uh, you were given an imaginative challenge about questions for the future. And your first mm-hmm. response was, well, will, will English be taught the way it is conventionally into the future? Mm-hmm. Or will there be mm-hmm. real gradations of it? Will we have uh, courses in text speak and you know the new right. cyber sort of languages so that may be a little bit of a clue um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but i was thinking right. of your response on that because i thought that was a very very interesting response and some of the people in that group who are all trying to think about what the future will look like they thought that was very interesting it's it wasn't it was precisely what you were asked for something that not necessarily flashy but something that might be deeply indicative of major structural change if we looked at right. it from a different point of view. So that may be a starting point. But anyway, okay. you, you've got uh, some interesting uh, thinking to run on the side in parallel. Yeah. Okay. All right. I'm already making a few notes. That's not what we do on this show. Parallel thinking. All right, Chris, what would we like to talk about today weekend dissonance what a weekend dissonance it's been i've got a couple of things but oh uh, over to you yeah well i i, I want to i guess just cover off briefly the, the the personal sort of uh revelation because i uh, i moved from my condo which i'd sold to an airbnb and i thought i had the whole thing wired uh, I thought, well, this, this seems like a, you know, a format that I could understand and other people have recommended. It was, in fact, my first experience with Airbnb mm-hmm. or, or Verbo, and it was quietly a disaster. Um, it, was, <laughs> it, it was wrong on every level, and it, I was forced uh, to leave uh, within... Uh, a couple of days time I did fortunately get my refund back but essentially a guy was running um, this communal uh, in other words a, a living room and communal kitchen with with private bedroom situations out of a basic condo community very much like the one I left and condo communities don't like that they don't like the extra cars the extra trash the people coming and going and they said now your business license is closed you're out of here and I wasn't honestly that surprised but it made me think about all of this these new ways of packaging fairly basic services like you know Uber and Lyft on the car cab driving thing uh, Airbnb and Verbo on accommodation and you know getting the app you know uh, right. I, I've had that question. Oh, do you have this? I mean, it's like, and there was a money transfer thing amongst friends, and like, oh, do you have this kind of account? And I thought, no, and I don't want to get another account, and I don't want to get a. It's like buying one tool for one job that you hope never to do again, you know. And on and on and on it goes, and it, it occurred to me that the schism, the dissonance here, 
is that all of these new modes of business and operation and service are being offered as you know alternatives of flexibility and customization. Don't pay for what you don't need and build your own burger and all of this on and on and on. But really underneath it is just an increasing pressure to be at the corporate level, you know? Yeah, right. I mean, I'm in a pretty basic but nice room, but you know, it's, it, it's, it comes at a cost. And the people who can generally afford that are the corporate travelers, you know, for the extended stay period that I need, in other words. Um, and I, I think that that is driving people insane because they're seeing, you know, this messaging constantly of what they can do. Just get the app. And in fact, mm-hmm. the real truth is, no, you're just falling further and further behind unless you are a... IT professional or high finance or you know something in that line you know it's it's an increasingly mm-hmm. corporatized white collar world that is then pitching itself as being more accessible and democratic and inclusive inclusive well no it ain't yeah. no it ain't yeah and I think that's bitter and brutal right now and we need to wake up to it and uh, really get some people get their feet in the fire and and get them to confess right because what happened with all these technological platforms is that they they promised a bit of uh independence to their users they marketed themselves as uh the ability to you know work your own hours and not have a boss and make your own money and that was all a very devious trick i have by the way similar suspicions about things like crypto and you know the decentralized web and all of these little traps that we can get into i'm very at the at this point i'm very skeptical of any of this kind of utopian thinking because the big rug pull that happened with apps like uber and uh, Airbnb was number one it turned people in on themselves it turned the master slave dialectic inward and made people their own slave drivers um, and what they really what all of these places really ended up doing was clamping down uh, another level of social control through the data that they were able to mine using all of these platforms right? This is social media. This is Airbnb. This is Uber. Everything that exists on this plane of, you know, the the kind of technocratic, like you said, build your own burger uh, is there to mine your data. Why do they want you to build your own burger? Because they want to know what you put on your burger so that they know more about you, right? So we reach this point and it, you know, it turns out obviously after all of the processing fees and the percentages that these big companies take, you have not achieved financial independence driving for Uber or renting out your Airbnb. It turns out that people who are already on that kind of level are the ones who succeed. So to me, it was all a big honeypot, right? It was a big... uh, 
cynical trap to get us to hand over our you know our data who we are our sovereignty for for free and not just for free but in some cases under the auspices of maintaining a little bit of sovereignty so you can't trust these people at all with anything so when now when i hear things like you know what's going to change everything cryptocurrency or DeFi or web3 i'm like yeah i'm gonna go live in a you know unabomber hut in the woods <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what i'm gonna do but no i'm obviously kidding but um but you see what i mean with this um, oh i sure I, do <laughs> I, I feel like we're on the same page here you know i mean we've just we've really been bamboozled i was thinking about this from a writer's perspective um you know 10 years ago my first novel came out on a small nothing press and was able to sell you know 5,000 copies utilizing the print-on-demand services of lightning source now lsi right um and it, it just i've seen it in the writing community all of that independent energy and that idea that you can sell and market your own book through social media has all been sort of sublimated into the exact same but somehow worse publishing industry that existed before these technologies came around um (laughs) and it's just all looking it's all looking very dark it's all looking like we we all reached for that carrot and you know we knock the stick out of the way and the box falls on our head right um we've all we've all been bamboozled well, it's it really is truly ugly, and I, I'll I'll give an example. I think of that we all can relate to uh, because there's a lot of talk about the job market today and mixed signals about that. Of course, everybody's worried about money and making a living and inflation. Uh, but I was was walking around Lowe's. You know, it's like Home Depot, one of these giant. Uh, warehouse-sized, you know, home improvement places. And I've had, a, you know, a pretty good experience uh, mm-hmm. with them in the past. Um, but you walk around there today, and seriously, it's... <laughs> you might as well be on a dinosaur hunt to find someone to help mm-hmm. you. It's ridiculous. And right in the midst of this sort of searching and groping and hunting, uh, when I was back in my room, I happened to uh, just flick on the TV to see what was on. And um, speaking of dissonance, just as a quick digression, I'm an enormous fan of all of these ads for dermatitis and eczema and these exotic and really hideous skin problems that seem to be epidemically plaguing America immediately followed by Mm. ads for pizza i'm just throwing that out there very briefly as some weird juxtaposition dissonance in practice but anyway i when i when the uh the awful skin uh disease ads broke and and returned to the the show in progress it was the the first Mm -hmm. uh back to the future and i happened to hit that one very simple scene, very incidental to, to the big picture, but I think really important, where Michael J. Fox as Marty is, is back 
in uh, Hill Valley <laughs> in time, and he walks past a filling station, as they were called then, and out pour these five or six guys in crisp white uniforms, and they're washing the windshield and checking the oil and all this sort of stuff. And think about that today. I mean, we are completely self-service, pay in advance. I mean, I actually remember the first time I ever, I was 17, and I was at the level of, of buying gas sometimes, you know, to pick up the girlfriend or to get home from some strange party. And I was counting the change on the floor of my car so that $2.17 actually might get me home, you know? Mm -hmm. And I hit a gas station where suddenly the rules had changed. That day, you had to pay in advance so that meant not only could you not drive off and, and you know rip them off, but you actually had to know how much gas you were going to get, which is you know fine with people with credit cards who just you know are filling it up, and when the you know mm -hmm. when the pump clicks off, that's what they pay. Mm -hmm. But for those of us who were then you know scrounging around for like, do I have two dollars and fifty eight cents or do I have three dollars and two cents? <laughs> you know, that was a big change. Right. And I think that when, when you talk about bamboozlement and, and the giant con, you know, there's all this, the customer service hustle. When we have less service, less convenience, less security, less everything except hassle, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. couldn't get more dissonant than that. No, no, absolutely not. I mean, you know, this week in particular, it's always... Um, something that we talk about a lot on this show is the implementation of kind of uh you know ritual spaces and i think that it's important to also practice banishing uh rituals from these particular spaces that we get into right because the psychic slime that you know leaves a snail trail across your brain over the course of a week is good to it's good to take a shower right and just kind of wash all that off but something that's really been um just kind of eating away at me is this constant repetition of this idea of misinformation and that word in particular is like nails on a chalkboard to me i mean what does it mean does misinformation just mean information that's incorrect because if so then some of our institutions are the largest purveyors of misinformation in the world right does it mean information that's dangerous well ditto for that so I'm, I'm just, you know, when someone comes out of left field, I don't even want to bring up what they're arguing about or even who it is. But, you know, when you see the totalizing, crushing weight of not just institutional wrath, but individual, uh, uh, you know, kind of democratic uprisings of, of people who, who don't want misinformation spread, it gives me hives. Like, I, I can't even, like, like, like <laughs> all I would say about that <clears throat> to listeners is just, you know, really kind of reassess what, think about that word and turn it over in your head. What does it really mean? 
because I'm so sick of hearing people using it in relation to Joe Rogan. It's it's so annoying. But that's what I got for this week as far as dissonance goes. Well, I, I'm with you on that. And I, I mean, I, I think the problem with uh, the Rogan situation particularly is that it it jumps from some pretty significant uh, giant issues of culture in terms of envy about someone with with such a, a platform and reach, uh, the way that people are influenced today, the breakdown in legacy or, or you know conventional media streams, and uh, the media you know in terms of what of the main networks the major uh, daily newspapers, they're all just scared to death because they know they're losing credibility. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if some politicians' poll numbers are in the tank, well, almost any news source that you can think of across the spectrum of ideology, not that there are many real outlets on the right, uh, but they're all in the tank in terms of, of credibility. Mm -hmm. So... I can see why there is fear about a, a figure like Joe Rogan, and there are others. I mean, I, I was of the view that uh, when Jordan Peterson was on his amazing uh, celebrity run, that a lot of the, the concern about him had nothing to do with what he was actually saying. Right. It was just that he was a, a white male figure who had become... Uh, significant, uh, uh, you know, with some real notoriety, and we hadn't had a public intellectual figure for quite some time. I mean, I challenge anyone to come up with a name. Uh, whereas in the 60s and 70s, they were, you know, we were pretty blessed. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I had a feeling that it was really just the influence that, that he had, rather than anything he said. And I, I do think part of that is true about the Rogan uh deal right now. I mean, I think, sure, uh, there is the, the COVID issue in terms of, of that's what people are, that's their argument. But I, I, you know, as I said last time, I don't think you can separate uh, the platform that he has, the envy. And, um, you know, AOC is, is an example in a, in a different register. I think that, and I'm no, certainly no fan of hers. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I, I admire her energy and uh, I, you know, I certainly take her seriously. But I do think that there is, uh, amongst legitimate bits of criticism about her policy ideas, and I, I, have, I have a lot of agreement with, with that criticism, I do think there's also some just some snarky envy, mm, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and that's what we've made this, this whole world into of... It's a, it's a celebrity talent contest where you're up in the state. No, it's not even a contest. It's more like a weird stock exchange where you're, you're, you know, your, your stock is doing well one minute, you know, and then it's down and next. And it's, it's just, it's very junior high. You know, it's really deeply junior. You know that old saying in American society, it was, it was fundamentally uh, sort of arrested at the high school development. Well, that's bull. It's now really, you know, it's, it's at seventh grade level now, you know. You know, I think back to when I was just coming out of high school and going into college, 
and I had uh, kind of these ideas about what it meant to be a creative person. And so I had these people who I looked up to, and they were, you know, you're, I think, pretty standard for someone my age and, you know, race and, uh, you know, upbringing. So I, for someone who wanted to be a writer, you know, I really looked up to David Foster Wallace. Um, I really looked up to Chuck Palahniuk. Uh, I loved Grant Morrison and his, you know, his comic books. I remember walking into comic book shops and picking up something like The Invisibles and just being, you know, having my mind blown by, or like, or I don't know if you ever read this one, but he did one called The Filth, which was his like evil, evil twin of The Invisibles. And, you know, you open up this comic and you see like the devil ejaculating enormous killer black sperm that are, you know, impaling people in the chest. And, you know, you're just reading this and you're like, that is so dark and weird and twisted. And, but it never crosses your mind at that time. Like, is this, you know, inappropriate? You know what I mean? Like, you, you, you read all these dark kind of stories and, and you think to yourself, like, wow, he really kind of pushed the envelope there. But you, you're never really thinking... Like, is this something that shouldn't be done? Um, so I'm not sure if I'm kind of going off the, the track here with this, but you, what you said just brought this to my mind, that that has been a, a major uh, kind of change in the past 10 years or so, right? Where you pick up something like that now and you just think like, whoa, can't say that. Now. And that, that's just a weird, just a very bizarre uh, place to be in, I guess. Well, you've you've you know mentioned to me like the, the the an extension of that, a related aspect of this problem is that uh, if you follow our theory, and listeners don't take this too seriously, but David and I are kind of intuitively agreed that that 2012 2013 was the turning point Mm -hmm. that was when the the toilet water reversed and started flowing you know swishing around the other way and uh, a whole lot of things got weird Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and and maybe uh, if we're allowed further history maybe some evidence of that that will uh, will come to light and we'll see more of the causal factors behind that but anyway if you just accept that sort of general proposition that 2012 was a line of demarcation uh david you've you've said to me on, on several sort of occasions something which I've, I've seen in my personal life and i bet some of our listeners know this and maybe they feel that way about their lives that there were things that were said uh posts on social media um viewpoints uh just very basically you know put forward and and maintained without much real question uh that today would be absolutely out of the question and i'm not even talking about i don't and i don't think that you when when you've spoken about this to me i don't think you're referring to anything that would have ever been seen as uh, offensive or edgy or confrontational. No. Uh, I'm talking, at least now, right now, about extremely, uh, well, a pretty, uh, I wouldn't say bland because none of us are bland, but um, 
innocuous That's in the right. sense of not right. not uh, red flag issues then. Uh, it would have been hard to conceive of them having you know raised eyebrows. And now I think that it, it's it's reached another extreme of more the question is, well, what wouldn't you know possibly raise an eyebrow because geez, they, that could have happened so easily, mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it happened, you know, it happened just inch by inch. And the funny thing is that we were <clears throat> kind of told that we were overreacting or, you know, paranoid if we pointed it out at any step of the way it's how you you know it's how you turn up the heat slowly on a pot of water so the lobster doesn't know that it's boiling um because you know at every step of the way you know somebody would have an issue with some minor thing in some art piece somewhere and instead of condemning that uh, criticism unequivocally we'd have a discussion about it and people would would say like hey look um all we're saying is you're a bad person if you if you like this thing (laughs) and then you know people on our side would say well what the hell are you talking about i'm a bad person because i i like this thing and they'd be like oh you're just you know now you're the one who's making a big deal of it it's kind of gaslighting in its own way um so anyway before you know it 10 years later you're at this point where you know i know multiple writers who have told me in confidence that a book that they were working on they've decided to just shelve because they're like oh you know that wouldn't fly these days what kind of thing is that to say like where are we well i can where what what have what have we done like this is insane it is insane and i i can tell you three or four projects of mine that that are in that category and i i find that completely uh, offensive and disheartening and because there's there's no good reason for it mm-hmm. in my view I think it's just absurd and I think we're living in a very very dark time I I had always you know thought the dark ages uh, a new dark age would come the, the collapse of the education system people over hypnotized by technology and you know pretty nasty street-level drugs despair rising the, the mental illness quotient i you know the the idea of the dark ages a new dark ages was pretty conventional in my view it was a collapse of certain structures and a collapse of certain uh hopes and dreams mm-hmm. but certainly more collapse you know right. i don't think that's the meta i don't think that's the verb i think we've got a creeping sponge like uh slime mold of uh, orthodoxy and rigidity of thinking, fear of liability, fear of social shaming, fear of not uh, saying the ideologically correct kind of thing. And, uh, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that anyone in in the major fields where this is the most rampant of arts and entertainment, academia, and the media, it's very difficult for me to imagine a really thinking expert practitioner in those fields not uh, seeing that the problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we'll just have to see where it goes. You know, I was very bullish about this kind of thing burning itself out, and I still think that it might. I just, I'm not... 
quite sure what that looks like anymore because the systems in place, you know, as uh, McLuhan said, the medium is the message. And look at the mediums that we currently have to get our messages out, you know. And until those things are destroyed, I thought the best news of the week was the historic, un unheard of before stock drop from Meta slash Facebook. Do you hear about this? The two, two yes, to the tune yes. of two hundred and forty billion with a B dollars. I, I that was my one kind of shining light of news in an otherwise completely dissonant and noisy week. Um, because I think until these things go away and something new is built, I don't know how we're going to get out of it. And the solution, as far as I can see, is a social media platform that is just completely fair in every, a, a feed that goes back to the way that things were, where posts are chronological. I don't think you should be uh, actually allowed to, uh, to block people uh, unless there's some kind of uh, harassment that you can prove that's going on. I think that you, if you sign on to this uh, platform, you choose who you want to follow. You can follow or unfollow them. That's still perfectly fine. But you're, you're no longer, uh, it's no longer a, cura a curated algorithm style feed, right? It's just a, the Wild West again. And you've got to go out there and, and deal with it. Um, that to me is the real only answer to this, short of the destruction of all social media, period, which isn't going to happen. But the problem is, is that every time a new social media venture like this starts, whether it's Gab or whatever, it becomes the exact same thing, just from a right wing perspective instead of from the left, right? So you end up with a, a, a social media platform that whose algorithm selects for, you know, Ann Coulter and Bill O'Reilly tweets instead of, uh, you know, whoever AOC and, you know, whoever the left equivalent of that is. None of that's what I'm talking about. Just a, a fully Wild West, uh, uh, you know, almost 4chan style <laughs> website where go there at your own risk. Well... You know, you've just triggered something, as you often do with me. I, this is what I, I really enjoy about these conversations, because uh, I accept the, the phrase, the Wild West. I know exactly what you mean, and I'm not saying historically that there isn't some validity to that. But living uh, more to the West than, than you do in America, and being interested in the West, and doing a lot of research into ghost towns and history, it's one of my ongoing, you know, fields of inquiry. I'm, I'm always struck by when I do find uh, really strong historical evidence that the idea of the Wild West is, is a completely manufactured notion. Mm -hmm. That there was, in fact, quite a bit of structure, quite a bit of civility, mm -hmm. quite a bit of order. Uh, and I'm not saying there weren't saloons and shootouts and, and brothels. and Yes, there were, but you look at wherever that is really talked about. It's Tombstone, Arizona, all parts of Nevada, you know, mm -hmm. the Barbary Coast section of San Francisco. There's a lot of romance in, in creating yeah. that myth. I of had the Wild no idea. I, this is news to me. I'm learning. And I... I think that what what really is the case is that when people uh, didn't have uh, you know 
this weight of authority when there was maybe like, you know, a lone marshal. Mm-hmm. I mean, seriously imagine that. You know, we're talking about defunding the police. People are into all that. Well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I think there was a time when people were better behaved. Uh, and I'm not saying there weren't crises. You know, there were there was criminality. I mean, we know all that. But I do think that the myth, the 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 making of the phrase the Wild West, whether that be in a criminal social behavior, goodness knows anything goes, or economic exploitation of the natural resources and various racial groups, however good or negative you see that phrasing, because it's used both ways. I, I think it's there's a strong level of of mythos there and what we what we're afraid of i think is is not authority but restrictions that are kind of more invisible you know i I talk about the invisible pet fences you Mm -hmm. know and i think that's what we've got going on today is there's all of these restrictions that we're not even sure where they're coming from the invisible pet fence is a great metaphor for what's going on, right? Because, you know, these these platforms really, uh, and the people who are in them, you know, let's not, you know, divest people of their agency in doing these kind of things, but these platforms that have a stranglehold over discourse and where it goes, uh, do so by setting up invisible, elect, like, dog fences that you don't know you've touched until you have accidentally become the main character of the internet, right? So it's this sort of constantly correcting force that uh, and you never know when you're going to be the one who accidentally crosses that invisible wire. That's the insidious thing, right? It's not like there's a, a list uh, out there of things you can, you can say uh, and, and not say. It's that nobody's really, outside of a few key phrases that I can think of, nobody's really quite sure what the rules are. Right, like there, there is a kind of like, uh, uh, this is probably reflect. I mean, I'm talking way out of my depth here because I haven't been in this world. Um, I have to imagine it's kind of like dating, now, right? Like, wh- what do you, what do you say? What's gonna get you on? What's gonna get you uh, put on blast on TikTok? They're gonna screenshot the things you say on Twitter or on Tinder, <clears throat> and put them on Twitter, right? Like, nobody really knows. So there's all this eggshell walking. That's interesting, right? Because what you're saying is that there, uh, it would be, you know, thinking again about how to kind of, you know, eradicate this, this, uh, this stranglehold that we're talking about, right? Um, it wouldn't necessarily be a free, uh, you know, platform, but it would be a platform with extremely clear rules down to you know the exact phrasing for example right like you on this platform you cannot say i am going to kill you right saying i am going to kill you will get you banned because that's a threat uh saying you know and and like actually having almost like a bible of of the things that will get you kicked off of that platform and it's like as long as you don't say these things you're good you you can you can say whatever i i think that's actually um it's wrinkling my brain a little bit and giving me a bit of direction because it's 
moving away from this idea that you know that we're under this kind of strict jackboot totalitarian thing and actually positing quite the opposite nobody really knows what what's going to set the system on you it reminds me uh, i i'm uh, i'm moving to the wonderful town of boulder city which just excites me so much and amongst many things you know there's the lake mead and the colorado river and tremendous hiking trails but the actual town is a real town town and uh, it's one of two in Nevada that doesn't have any gambling. And it has some really, really cool antique shops and strange things. And uh, I was in this one, uh, I think it's called Goat Feathers Emporium. It must have been an old stable or something. It's, it's, one of, it's just an amazingly complicated building. And it's been more complicated with these little alcoves just filled with amazing stuff. Some of it's just junk, but some of it's, some of it's not. But you know you're you're crowding around. You just you know and, and mingling with these people and, and and trying not to break something because there are these signs that go you know you if you if you break it you bought it, mm-hmm. you know which is fair enough. And some of these things are one of a kind yeah. now. But you know I kept sort of seeing these signs that go, uh, you are under surveillance, mm-hmm. uh, under video surveillance, and you just think, well. Really? I mean, <laughs> how is anyone going to locate where you are in this? It's not like some sort of, you know, CIA sort of monitored sort of thing. I mean, I can't believe, really, that those signs are sort of real. Mm-hmm. And what would happen? I mean, yeah, you, you know, would someone come to your aid if you, uh, you know, had a stroke? You know, would it be surveillance? You know, that should, it should cut both ways, shouldn't it? Mm-hmm. You know? surveillance should mean protection yeah. you know it's like you should feel more secure and not just more uh you know suspect mm-hmm. but i don't know i think it's just all do you know how many the percentage of security cameras that are completely dummied what is the percentage i think it's like 43 <laughs> percent I think it's on that order. That know? would have to be the case in a place like London. I always thought, you know, it's the most surveilled city in the world, and it's notorious for having cameras on every street corner. And I thought, that seems impossible. Because even if it's true, it's not like anybody, nobody's really watching them. And the, 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 the amount of data that would have to flow to a centralized place and be stored, I mean massive amounts of audio and visual data <clears throat> at all times of the day. I mean, I just don't think that there's a a computer with enough computing power yet to to even handle that, right? Certainly not on a government budget. So, I've been suspicious. It's it's hard to conceive. Well, I think the IRA have been <laughs> suspicious for a long time about that. Yeah. Uh, and many other sort of, uh, you know, groups. I mean, yeah, you're right. It's just nonsense. But as you said, I, and I think this is a, you know, a really important point of, uh, it's not about some sort of great centralized authority, uh, shadow force, uh, overseeing all our activities. It's, it's us, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. The surveillance and restrictions that's the invisible pet fence we're we're doing it to ourselves and we're very very good at it i right. mean uh we've got paranoia it just it's so easy to uh, to get rolling and then then you don't need to do anything else you're paralyzed mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. 
Yeah, absolutely. That's been, you know, if I had to pinpoint one thing that has actually been eating at me the the past, especially the past few days, I had a, a buddy of mine that I was talking to and he, I, I was talking about the misinformation stuff and I was talking about the different government agencies that had been, you know, spreading misinformation of their own and blah, 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 and this and that. And he said, well, dude, let me, let me just stop you for a second, right? He's like, any, uh, any claim that you're making that there is some kind of force, whether it's the government or, uh, or whoever, that is kind of guiding this is complete cope because the answer is much, much spookier. He's like, this is a huge transhuman, uh, you know, singularity. We often think that the singularity is somewhere in the future. He's like, oh no, the singularity has already happened. And there. Oh, I'm totally down with that. Absolutely. And, and he's like, and there is a force. A, a an arconic uh, he said I think he said evil but I can't remember exactly force that is guiding not not Bill Gates not Joe Biden not AOC not Donald Trump right this is a runaway train and we are all part of it and that to me scared the shit out of me for one but two it also um you know, it opened my eyes a little bit. You know, this this is a problem with people like you and I, in mass, right? Because um, mm-hmm. you know, you, you watch all these documentaries about things like MK Ultra and and brainwashing and how easy it is to to use images to manipulate people. And while that all might be true, I'm I'm not so ready to let our fellow citizens off the hook about this anymore this is a people problem i oh i i think absolutely right Mm -hmm. i think that absolutely right no question about it and the 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 greatest uh or most visible symptom of the crisis of the disease is the desire to you know outsource that as you know in a causal sense to some giant amorphous you know force yeah. some group some other mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. no, no 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 scarier i mean because it's us <laughs> yeah well if you remember there was an old uh, comic strip pogo i never sort of sat in i think oki finoki swamp but it was you know the sunday funny papers and i think one of the the famous ones that we have seen the enemy and it's us you know mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure that idea comes from many other sources, but that's what you're saying, and I think, and and, and maybe it's not so much the enemy is us because that really is paranoid, and I love paranoia and other people. It's so it makes me so, I just I smile. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a way of dealing with my own paranoia, of course. But mm-hmm. I think that we are. Uh, it, it's going back to an early metaphor that we used. Um, God, in the first few episodes of Winnie the Pooh and Piglet and where the woozle wasn't, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. We're, we're just refusing to take responsibility for those footprints that are ours, repeated and repeated and repeated, and we are creating an ever more uh, well-imagined woozle. Yeah. You know? Yeah. All right. Um, 
I've given some thought to this part of speech challenge. Uh, would you like to hear it? Yes, I would. Yes, I would. Okay. Let's see how this works. I'm glad that you told me about the interjection because uh, it really helped me to come up with this one. So an interjection is something to the effect of oh or ah or uh, usually isn't grammatically connected to the sentence that it's um, that it's a part of or that it proceeds so I was thinking about the way that speech works and this is coming from a very negative point of view right uh, but I was thinking about things like irony and sarcasm and I was thinking about how irony and sarcasm used as tools of satire can be so um, effective. But I was also thinking about the fact that my recent scrolling adventures on social media have yielded the observation that everybody, and I mean everybody, has the bad habit of taking something that their enemy has said in jest, whether that's satire or uh, something completely absurd, and taking it as though it's gospel. And I was thinking about speech rules and how, uh, you know, as we move forward into the future, the things that you say might get you in even more trouble than they could get you in these days, right? So instead of the interjection, I was thinking of the interjective as a potential part mm. of speech. So mm. an adjectivized interjection that is designed to uh, color the speech that either precedes or follows from it in order to indicate the intention of the sentence uh, and its and its truthiness, right? So it would be it would be words that would were put into a sentence so that you could you could indicate through something simple like ah or uh or or what have you that you could indicate I'm just kidding or this is a joke um, and 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 do so seamlessly so that there's no question as to what you actually are trying to say. Okay. Well, look, I started to uh, wag my flippers really, really sort of the moment you started speaking. Mm -hmm. um, I'm always so damn curious about what you're going to come back with. This is a really, really uh, deep response. I'm, I hope listeners are picking up on this. is a very, very big challenge. This is the kind of thing that when I've put it forward to students around the world, uh, my the best minds in the room or on the screen they wince they really really don't mm -hmm. uh david picked it up and ran with it and he's got a you know a tremendously courageous uh sporty heart when it comes to these sorts of challenges it's a really really difficult uh you know thing to think about um it gets you first of all it, you inevitably start thinking about the eight or nine parts of speech that are accepted and exist and the functionality of them 
And that in itself is a very, very confronting thing because we're, we're used to just accepting them and, and just throwing them around, using them more or less efficiently. Uh, but to come up with something else also means to, to identify a need, some, some little break in the huge fabric of language that isn't fully being serviced uh, you know, and, and it's kind of like coming up with an app for it. Right. Um, but hopefully doing that with some real legitimacy. And I think you've done that really well, David. I think what we might need for listeners, and I'd, I'd like to, um, I said at the start uh, that you wouldn't get a second go round with this. Mm-hmm. I think it would be cool, though, for you to do a little bit of, of more thinking and just a short write-up of that on the level of the kind of definition you'd see online, you know, in a, in a dictionary definition, mm-hmm. uh, with an example, a couple of practical examples. Because you might have really stumbled on something very important. Uh, there's, there's at least a level of subtlety there that needs further reflection. I certainly need to give it more reflection, and I think our listeners might. But there's something really interesting there. Uh, so well done. Cool. Well yeah, done. I can do that. Yeah, no problem at all. The other things that I were thinking about that I think are a little bit less interesting do have to do with uh, emoji, right? Like um, thinking about it in terms of uh, a more hieroglyphic type of language, right? Um, so, you know, a, a kind of word that, you know, sort of indicates the, well, this, I guess, follows from what I was already saying about the interjective but just words that in general t- color the mood of the sentence that in which they're contained um but yeah no i can uh, i can definitely write up something about my new made-up part of speech i'd be happy to good and i think that uh that notion of of the hieroglyphic side of things it, which is in one sense you could say a graphic design issue is also worth talking about next time because that is part of you know the mystery of language that somehow that aspect developed in a kind of weird parallel with sometimes that that those connections or any congruence is is not uh, you know not necessarily intuitive you know um, I mean think of the different writing systems around the world there's obviously some very serious uh, departures from, uh, you know, any kind of consensus. So we should, I think, really celebrate that uh, and investigate it and not take it for granted. So well done. Um, Okay. Uh, Well, look, I have um, have a major uh, new approach to get to with our tools which we've been talking about as distinct from tips and I think given the time uh, what I want to do is just plant a seed about where some of the new uh, suite of tools are going and they they focus on um, a math approach we've been looking at sort of linguistic and conceptual tools But I would signal to listeners, um, I'm sure everyone has heard of Euclid and Euclidean geometry, which is a very strange term. 
it's a little it's it's very analogous to Newtonian mechanics and physics up until uh, very recently, relatively speaking, there was no point in saying Euclidean geometry because there wasn't any other kind. Uh, and the alternatives to that perspective are, you know, very much of, of the modern age. Uh, they, they are not that, uh, well, they're just very recent. And I think changes to uh, the Newtonian world, the Newtonian level where... Uh, that aspect of physics is valid that also is fairly fairly recent you know we're talking the 20th century so i would encourage people to have a look back at euclid euclid's elements directly don't look you know crib notes don't i mean they're very elegantly <laughs> laid out and what is remarkable to me in touching base with them is that they move between a conceptual basis of logic and agreement, building platforms of, of proof, you know, from axiom to postulate to theorem. So they're very much about uh, agreement and consensus and platforms of knowledge that we can build on which has a great deal to do with the, the problems that language faced. And the Greeks you know, took on board that same challenge within language. And one of the first real elements of philosophy in proper terms is epistemology. How can the basis of knowledge and how that relates to language. But the thing that, that Euclid does also is, is this very physical sense of geometry, a very practical approach to management and measurement of space, measurement of quantity, the very concept of measurement and consistency and repetition. So a very, very interesting base. I just would encourage people to have a look at the, the basic axioms to start with, the five axioms to begin with. But for next time, I want to focus on one of the most amazing human inventions that I think is possible to consider. And many cultures contributed to this. Uh, the Fertile Crescent cultures, India, China, Mesoamericans. This is not some sort of racist white idea. And any proposition that, that to the contrary, is just simply flat out uh, grievously wrong. It's not misinformation. It's just, it's evil. Okay, because many, many cultures were part of this invention. And I'm speaking about the very, very strange notion of zero. Zero is uh, ironically a massive idea that is very hard to imagine the world without zero. It's impossible to imagine arithmetic, any of the many exotic uh, expansions into number theory but it's such a beautiful amazing idea and think of the notion of the additive identity property you know identity is such a big term now anything times zero is zero anything multiplied by zero is zero anything that has zero added to it 
is itself. I mean, no wonder, no wonder cultures around the world have a religious and magical connection with numbers and mathematics. And so many people in the humanities, so many writers would do well to reconnect with this because there are some real uh, points to learn. And I want to uh, introduce uh, out of this little screed that I've just put forward, uh, what I hope is will be a very effective tool for people who are more humanities driven, uh, but in dealing with the media, misinformation, uh, the crisis of our times, the dissonance of modernity. Uh, but Euclid is a nice place to, to touch base with. And he's, his writing, his thinking is almost more of a place than the work of you know, an individual author or mind. It's so beautifully organized and structured, and yet it really has an organic, uh, living energy to it that completely uh, informs and contradicts the notion of structure and order and restriction. I mean, he's one of the guys to go to on that front. So I will plant that seed for next time, and I will get to... Uh, my practical tip for the week. Let's do it. Yeah, I look forward to that. I'm looking forward to a math-oriented series on this show because I'm uh, not a math guy. So we shall we'll see we'll see how I hold up with all that. But uh, well, it's going to be interesting. And you know, I don't think I'm a, a math person necessarily. But you know, I'm going to maintain that we all are. Okay. And I think that we just have to change our our frame of reference to except in what ways we are and to to see new applicability mm -hmm. uh but it is going to be fun and it will be a suite or a, a kind of a series of of tools that sort of take that that direction have that tonal quality um okay this builds on this the tip of the week builds on an earlier tip i put forward of being able to record and listen to speech, music, sound, backwards. I think this is an amazing thing. This is, is both in terms of sound and the visual analog in terms of running film backwards mm -hmm. are pretty magical things that weren't really possible in, in, in really you know, obvious physical, literal terms until you know pretty recently they they're part of the the modern era you know before then uh and we forget you know we take all of this technology for granted uh it wasn't so long ago that 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 idea of hearing something backwards or seeing something in reverse mm -hmm. would have been purely an act of, of of imagination it wouldn't have been there was no physical way to achieve that but I want you to think about this. One of the biggest binary oppositions that lies at the heart of the Western tradition, and it may be one aspect, one way of seeing what is eating us alive, what is killing us, what is at the heart of so many of the schisms that we talk about is that opposition between the mechanistic and the organic. 
that is a very, very deep, deep divide, mm-hmm. and it really defines the the boom in in science and industry of the nineteenth century. Uh, it builds on the Cartesian right. dichotomy of mind and body. It, it goes way back, of course, but it really hits its stride in the nineteenth century and is with us in force today on so many levels. Yeah. And I want to offer a, a, what I think is an interesting way to get a handle on that difference. Because there's an oscillation between those two modes of being, those two modes of description. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are bone machines, our bodies, absolutely. We are also ecosystems, communities of organic process. Right. So we're, we're neither one nor the other, but both. And it's... It's uh, in, in, in terms of physics, you could say it's particle and wave. There's a constant oscillation between those two ways of seeing and describing the, the world. And they, it is an either or, it's an and, but it's one at a time in a different, it's very hard to hold both those ideas together at one time. But I don't think that I ever have seen or heard as clearly the distinction between the mechanistic and the organic as I'm about to put forward, because it's so garage simple. Take any kind of sound made by a machine, drill, electric saw, motor, on and on and on, all right? Mm-hmm. Record that. Now, record a baby crying, record a bird, record a coyote howling, record anything so-called natural. All right? Mm -hmm. Now, make the recordings go backwards. And you will hear instantly, physically, auditorily, a major, major difference. And the psychological effect will be extremely clear to you. The point is that machine processes sound much, much more similar, if not sometimes exactly alike, played in reverse. Not always. There's an, but you can the pattern and the rhythm is incredibly distinctive. That completely rearranging the sequence, rearranging time, has much less effect than on anything so-called organic or natural in sound. Mm -hmm. So it's the question of of repetition and the reversal process, how something functions in time. And if you stop and put aside, well, the difference between artificial and natural or mechanistic and organic, and think about how something behaves in time in your in, in sensory terms I think that's a new way to think about that deep and to some extent bitter binary it breaks it down and it can make it you can think well okay supposing I do I'm, I'm a very organic person I'm very you know 
I struggle with logic and structure. I'm, I'm late for meetings. I'm very emotional. I'm, I've got that mindset about myself. So I need to put in more right-angled, mechanistic thinking. And, you know, a lot of, I mean, there are a lot of people who, who you know, feel that way. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's not the right way to position that. And I don't think that you that the, the right angle mechanistic logic driven people can just decide to be more organic and free form. I don't think that works either. So how we make these changes is is repositioning that that binary. Mm-hmm. And the difference is when you play something backwards, how different does it sound? Think about that. Yeah, and it's so interesting that it's it is simple, but at a certain point, just a shift in perspective can change so much. And it's a big ask for people to uh, sort of follow you logically to a perspective shift. But something like, you know, playing the sound of a drill bit going backwards or a baby or mixing those two together and playing them all at once or, you know, um, making one lower in the mix and one higher in the mix. Uh that kind of visceral, um, you know, non, uh, non-thinking. It's, it's interesting because it's, it's basically, uh, it's, it's tapping into the non-mechanistic part of your brain, right? Uh, the parts of your brain that have to start working to comprehend and, and compartmentalize that auditory experience are, the very types of, of functions that you're trying to, to point to, right? But I do I do agree that yeah, the, the, the mechanistic slash organic divide is one that has become so uh uh kind of the mechanism the me- the mechanistic side has become so totalizing that it's it, you know, it's invaded the idea of the organic. Um so anything that kind of helps people to get to the to the point where, you know, it's it's not one thing or the other. Um, because, you know, if, you know, if you go into, uh, a sort of like a radioactive, if you go to Chernobyl, um, you're going to get cancer and tumors and things like that, right? Because there is radiation there that has a mechanical, scientifically proven effect on your physical being, right? But that's not everything that there is, right? So I, I like it. It's good. Um, do we have a dream today? Is there is is today a dream day? Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's uh, and it kind of ties in. Uh, <laughs> um, I I I'll I'll begin by saying I th- I think it has a definite theme to it, and uh, I I hope the theme is seen in a fun way, because uh, that's the message that I took away in waking up. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm I've been out uh, in uh, well the sort of the weird outskirts of of Las Vegas, uh, and one of the things I love so much about where I'm moving, which is over the round the bend and over the mountain, and it's it really is the high mountain desert in a whole other world, but the the outskirts of of either the north side or the south side, which I'm on. It's just plain. I mean, there is, there are, you, there are beautiful mountains in the distance, but but there's just some plain unfinished suburbs. There's some weird industrial stuff. There's some chain link fences with you know big dogs and trucks going in and out. And you think, I wonder what they're doing in there. 
And it's just, you know, there's a lot of oddness. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I was out in, in that sort of environment in my dream. And it was really, really cranked up. It was like a Michelangelo Antonioni sort of movie of like, you know, uh, real alienation. Um, like if the South Bronx could be cast in a completely desert sort of mm. way without the building, it had that kind of sense mm -hmm. to it. And uh, I was out going to some event and I was going to be told by this app in my car uh, a version of Siri but with uh, the name Anti Maria which I don't know I don't know about but she had a really, really deep voice. I'm a huge fan of late night female DJs with sexy, deep voices. Well, this was the wrong computer version of that. Mm -hmm. And I was waiting for this service to tell me what to do. And I think I, I believed at first I was a kind of a, a journalist covering the event. And I didn't know what event I was going to. And I was beginning to think, God, I hope it's not something like a dogfight or some sort of, you know, post-apocalypse, you know, gladiator sort of, you know, freelance gladiator sort of thing. Because that was kind of the environment. But no, no, it wasn't. It was, uh, I got out to this sort of track with these huge earth-moving tires sort of laying out the course. And I thought, oh, maybe this is like kind of a road warrior go-kart thing. And I was prepared, you know, well, I'm going to get to see some sort of, you know, sporting event that, you know, is, is off the books. Well, as I got there, Anti Maria told me, in fact, that I was the MC uh, starter and, and referee and authority figure for this event. And I thought, oh, I'm not really happy about that. I, I feel like I should know more about the event. Well, it was a race. Uh, but it was instead of these sort of really mangled barbed wire and spike, you know, go-karts that I was imagining, it was these ridiculous little tiny toy cars and adults squashed into them with their butts hanging off the side and their knees scraping and they were constantly falling over. And I thought, this is designed to completely frustrate and humiliate people. And that was the point. That was exactly the point. Mm -hmm. It wasn't who won the race. The whole event was based around who was going to get through the course without just going completely ballistic and, and just getting out of the car and smashing it over someone else's head. Mm because that was frowned on. So it wasn't the demolition derby violence, sort of Mad Max, Road Warrior, Walking Dead, post-apocalypse thing. No, it was like this really brutal psychological thing of how can we make people feel totally undignified and just so awkward to the point where they can't take it. Mm. And... <laughs> I I was up on this sort of big bleacher with uh, a flag that was 
it wasn't either black or white, it was silver, and it seemed kind of insipid. And I felt, well, I'm sort of frustrated if I'm the starting, you know, race master MC, and I, I, threw, I threw it away. And I realized, well, I'd already lost at my role. And I thought, I'm not gonna wait and see how frustrated these people are. I'm hoofing it over that fence and getting away from here. And when I woke up, I was running uh, due north.